Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing confidence, a quality that most of us tend to highly admire when we see it in other people, and a quality we think will advance our careers when we possess it securely in ourselves. Surely, none of us wants to walk through life feeling unconfident, yet a surprising amount of research proves that overconfidence not only interferes with our ability to make the best decisions, Daniel Kahneman says it happens to be the most significant of the cognitive biases. In other words, what Kahneman and innumerable other researchers have discovered is that most people act as if they're sure about outcomes in life than they should be. And this human tendency towards overconfidence is fraught with peril, especially for anyone who holds a leadership role. My guest today is University of California Berkeley Business School professor Don Moore. His new book, Perfectly Confident, How to Calibrate Your Decisions Wisely, comes out next month, and I'm very excited that we're going to be able to dig into it with him well in advance. As we're about to discuss, our unconscious bias towards overconfidence proves to have a whole lot of bad influences. When we feel certain about an outcome of an idea or plan, we become less rigorous in its implementation. Feelings of confidence not only make us reluctant to solicit opinions on how we might be wrong, it drives us to find people and data to confirm our existing beliefs. And worst of all, perhaps, is that feeling confident very often prevents us from changing our minds and our course of action before it becomes too late. According to Don, overconfidence has been blamed for the sinking of the Titanic, the loss of two space shuttles, the subprime crisis, and the nuclear accident at Chernobyl. In light of that, you're about to learn how to successfully dodge overconfidence, including a mindset that Don learned from the example of the Buddha. And I'll leave it there. We welcome you to the podcast, Don Moore. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. Well, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation, and particularly because of some of the stuff that you wrote at the beginning of your book, sort of background on you personally. And I'm always interested in the life journeys that influence my guesswork. You know, how people get where they got to is always really fascinating. I think our audience really enjoys hearing it too. So in your book, you say, when you were a young boy, you read a lot of self-help books, which honestly amused me. <laughs> and, and as an adult, you went to one of the Tony Robbins seminars and did the coal walking and ended up burning your feet, which also amused me, I have to say. So I want to start there. What were you thinking as a kid? Like what, <laughs> you know, like what motivated you to start reading Think and Grow Rich and You're a Badass? Well, that was probably preceding <laughs> you. But, you know, these are the kinds of books, The Secret and yeah. Master Key System. So, and then how did that immersion in that genre influence you? Because you obviously chose to bring this into your book. So I'm thinking it had to have a big influence on your work on confidence. Indeed, Yeah. As a kid, I was inspired by the invitation to think big about possibilities. <laughs> and I wanted to believe the claim that greater confidence would bring me greater success in personal, intellectual, and professional pursuits. So I soaked up the messages from these books and tried to talk myself into being more confident. And after working really hard at building my confidence and being disappointed again and again at its failure to rocket me to success on the popularity list at Highland High School where I went, let alone actually leave me fulfilled and happy with my life, I grew skeptical of the notion that somehow I could will myself into being more confident and that it would magically bring about success in my life. So the motivation was social, right? Certainly as a kid, yes. Okay. But who was the one that said, start reading this kind of book? <laughs> you know? I found it myself. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. There was no person who sent me in that direction. I was a, a total bookworm as a kid. And when I happened upon the self-help aisle at the bookstore, was just entranced by what I found there. Anything that stands in memory of having influence? Like, you know, were there some books that actually made a big difference? 
Oh, yeah. Think and Grow Rich, Mm -hmm. Rich While You Sleep, The Secret. It was books in that genre, and uh, I read more of them than I can count. So you mentioned The Secret. This is a book that I think sold 30 million copies and probably counting. And the basic premise is that our thoughts create our reality. And optimism and positive thinking make, in your language, dreams come true, right? So what does the data show? And, you know, this idea that as we think we manifest, as we think we create, you know, our reality, did you affirm and negate that in in your whole process? (laughs) You know, 30 million copies, I think people Uh are interested in knowing what you think of this, you know? It's such a positive, uplifting, inspiring message. If only we believe hard enough, we can achieve all that we desire. But the lessons of the secret are driven more by wishful thinking than by reality. Now, before I dismiss it, I should say, of course, that I believe that the way we think influences what we do, what we achieve and our satisfaction in life. I'm a teacher. I wrote this book because I want to influence the way people think and what they believe. It's also the case that there is a profound way in which the lessons of the book are real and durable. I mean, everywhere around us, we observe correlations between confidence and success. More confident entrepreneurs are more likely to succeed. More confident athletes are more likely to win. And more confident candidates are more likely to get elected to political office. It's tempting to think that confidence led to those outcomes and to fail to appreciate the possibility that there's another variable, actual ability, talent, or advantage that might have contributed to both confidence and success. We mistake that correlation for causation. What does the data say about the degree to which just being confident contributes to success? The data suggests that that's not an effective strategy to promote success, that what leads to both confidence and success, underlying talents or ability or advantage, that that is the durable basis on which to build a career or relationship or a life. That positive visualization, while it can under some circumstances be helpful, the circumstances in which it helps is when that visualization prepares you to do the actual work of studying or practicing. Otherwise, it fails to magically make your dreams come true. If that visualization persuades you that success is guaranteed and you don't need to practice or study or invest effort, it can actually undermine your chance of success. I'm interested in talking about how it undermines our success. But before we go there, you know, I think we probably collectively believe that confidence is causal, right? Like you sort of suggested that we we hire people in the leadership roles who demonstrate the most confidence, people who come in for any job, anybody that demonstrates confidence, we go, oh, I like that guy. I'm, you know, he's confident. And, and that sort of suggests to us that he's going to go off or she is going to go off and do a fabulous job just because of that one trait. And you're saying that that's just not true. Well, so that relationship is weaker than lots of us assume that it is. Now, selecting the more confident person to lead might not be crazy if their confidence is correlated with reality. And most evidence suggests that it is, but that correlation is far from perfect. And by selecting the most confident candidate or applicant, you run the risk of selecting the overconfident one, and that overconfidence can get you, your team, your organization into a great deal of trouble. So how did we come to conclude? How did we get there? Why do we think that confident people tend to be high-producing, highly successful people just on its own merits? It is really easy in daily life to confuse correlation with causation. In order to distinguish which effects are actually causal rather than just associated with some outcome that we care about. We need to understand the causal mechanisms at work, and the best way to test those is with an experiment. In daily life, we rarely get to run the experiment where we manipulate confidence and observe its effect on performance in some representative sample of people. I tried to run that experiment in my lab, and the results were illuminating. 
in task after task, when we manipulated people's confidence, we found that we had a big effect on their beliefs about their likely success and others' beliefs about their likely success. What did we get in the actual results? It never made a difference. When we told them, you're awesome, you're going to do great at this, it didn't affect their performance on tests, math tests, trivia tests, tests of physical endurance, tests of athletic performance. We simply couldn't find an effect of that sort of confidence on actual performance, even though it had big effects on people's beliefs about their performance. So you're my coach. And let's just say I'm going to go meet with a client and I'm going to try to get him to buy something, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to sell him something. And you're my manager, you're my coach, and you go, Mark, you're going to be awesome. Is that form of encouragement, is that really not going to have much of an impact on whether or not I'm successful? Is that what you're saying? I think that there have to be some circumstances when belief in yourself actually contributes to success. If I don't think I have any chance of winning the race, I'm just not going to enter it. And in the words of Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So if confidence leads you to step up and compete, it's got to increase your chances of winning that competition. On the other hand, if what your coach does in encouraging you is to make you think, meh, I got it in the bag, no problem and you invest less effort, or you give up more quickly when the data suggests, mm -mm, he was blowing smoke, you do not have this in the bag, then it could lead you to give up more quickly. So it's really overconfidence that you're leery of. Yes, exactly. If we can help people calibrate their actual confidence, to the task at hand, we will best prepare them to succeed. And that involves giving them realistic expectations about what it's going to take to succeed. I think that there are many, 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 many domains in which all of us fail to capitalize on potential successes, where underconfidence leads us to shrink back or to fail to enter the race. We worry that it won't turn out so well or we'll embarrass ourselves. Each of us has vast stores of untapped potential. And I want to encourage us to step up and capitalize on those strengths, to exploit that potential, to make the most of our abilities. I think underconfidence gets us in trouble when it leads us to shrink from opportunities that would have been successful. And what I hope, what I've, the, the message that I try hard to drive home in my book is you should believe the truth. You don't want to be overconfident or underconfident. You want good evidence, and you should want to believe the truth. So before we go too much further, how did this become your life's work? What was it in your studies, in your education, your life experience that influenced you to dig so deeply into confidence? Yeah, I saw an opportunity to contribute on the subject building on a voluminous literature on the study of overconfidence in the field of judgment and decision-making. There's been a lot of work, and a fairly broad consensus had emerged suggesting that people were overconfident about most things most of the time. And my research discovered some exceptions to that general rule. I identified domains in which people were systematically and predictably underconfident. And making sense of those exceptions, identifying when they occurred and what their implications were, led me down this long path of discovery that's turned into my life's work. So big picture, what are things that we collectively tend to think we're better at? Driving is one you <laughs> mentioned, right? We all think yeah. we're better drivers than most people. And then, so what are some of those? And then what are some of the ones where you found that we underestimate our confidence or we have less confidence than we should? The simple distinction, and this is an insight that Justin Kruger gets credit for identifying, is task difficulty. On easy tasks, where performance is good relative to some standard, we generally think that we are better than others. And on hard tasks, we are much more likely to think that we're worse than others. When I invite the students in my MBA classes to assess themselves relative to their classmates, they report thinking that they're better drivers, that they're more attractive, that they're more honest than their classmates. But when I ask them about more difficult things, juggling, the number of lives they'll save, 
their knowledge of Latin, the number of companies they'll found. They claim that they are worse than average, worse than their classmates in these more difficult domains. What's the takeaway? That it's easy to be confused about how you rank relative to others. People make the assumption, oh, I'm not very good at this. I must be worse than others. Well, if everybody's bad at it, Mm -hmm. then... Nobody knows Latin. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Or when they realize that the tests I give in my class are quite challenging, people think, oh, I'm not going to do very well. Even when it's explicit that it's going to be graded on a curve. So when everybody's bad at something, that doesn't mean everybody will lose. If there's a business opportunity that comes with great challenges, you should step up and take that challenge because it's going to be hard for everybody. But still, there's going to be someone who succeeds at it. I love that point. Thank you. I'm really glad you made that. You know, a big focus of your book, this is like one of the things that I've been most interested in talking to you about is this just seems to be playing out in real time right now that how it's human nature to lean into people and ideas which confirm our beliefs and worldviews. You know, we definitely see this politically, you know, that's sort of like, I have my view of the world and nothing can knock it down. You have your view of the world and there's nothing I can do to persuade you to change it. And so The key here is that we rarely make any effort or we make very little effort to even inquire as to why somebody would think something very differently. We're just dismissive or we're judgmental or in worst cases, we hate those people. You know, they think this and I think this and never the twain shall meet. And so this is an implication for leadership that I really want to go into with you. So tell us about why we defend our positions and why that is such a classic example of misuse of confidence. Yeah, it's a profoundly important topic. I should note at the outset that the type of overconfidence that is most pervasive is not thinking that you're better than others, but it's being too sure that you know the truth. When people make this mistake, it will make them less receptive to hearing the views of others. It makes all of us too willing to bet on ourselves and the accuracy of our knowledge, even when they're smart people who disagree with us. And as you implied, possibly the most salient domain in which we cling to our beliefs and are all too willing to think that people who disagree with us are either evil or stupid comes in political partisanship, where many of us are quite resistant to hearing arguments on the opposite side of the political spectrum. We just think that there are bad people or people who believe that must be dumb, when in fact we have much to learn from those whose views are different from ours. It's comfortable and maybe ego gratifying to talk to people who believe the same things as we do, but we don't have much to learn from those people. Deeper insights come from communicating with those whose beliefs are different from ours. You know, I'm intrigued, obviously, because I see in America, we have an audience all over the world, but specifically my exposure to American politics is that it's incredibly polarized. And yet this plays out in business. It plays out in management meetings where you're making decisions about things, where somebody has a limited amount of information and they're ready to declare, yes, we're going or no, we're not going. And you got another side of the party with the same you know, resistance to hearing other sides saying, I'm, whatever you said, I'm going the opposite. Mm-hmm. And we defend our postures that way. So tell us about that and tell us what's your advice, like guide us on becoming better leaders, better decision makers in our broader lives by having a much more open mind and being willing to inquire and ask people who we think have opinions that will violate us in some way that they can actually educate us and broaden our perspectives and maybe actually influence us in a way that will make us better leaders, better people. Thanks for that invitation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to take you up on it. In my book, I talk about this problem in the context of stock valuation. I can go into the market believing that I have correctly estimated the value of some security. But if there's another intelligent person with a lot of good information who's willing to trade with me, that suggests they might have information that I don't. 
and thinking about their perspective and understanding what they know that I don't about the value of this security could be very useful for helping me update my beliefs and incorporate information that they have that I lack. It happens too often, as you describe, that in business settings, we try to persuade others or that we assert the power of our position and just steamroll over others who would disagree with us. In fact, we really ought to want to draw out that information, understand their perspective. Wait, why do you have an opinion that's diametrically opposed to mine? What do you know that I don't that could drive that opinion or that perspective? One way that companies have attempted to capitalize on differences of opinion and take advantage of the wisdom of the crowd, the diversity of perspectives within the company, is to establish prediction markets where you allow people within the company to bet on different perspectives. Say, for instance, we're getting ready to introduce some new product and there's a champion who's pushing this idea enthusiastically. Maybe that person ranks highly in the organization and that makes the strategy likely to win the day. Well, what about the skeptics? What do they think? And what do they know that the product's champion doesn't understand? You can set up a prediction market that allows people to bet on what sales are going to be next year that brings in differing perspectives and might generate some insights that would allow for productive discussion rather than a meeting where the project's champion tries to intimidate others into silence or agreement, gather those diverse perspectives and then explore the evidence behind them. What evidence would suggest that sales are going to be disappointing next year? That's a process that Daniel Kahneman talked about in his book as a pre-mortem before you undertake some risky project, you ask, what are the most likely reasons why it's going to fail? And can we mitigate some of those risks? But asking why you might be wrong and inviting the perspectives of those who think you're wrong can be very helpful for identifying the weaknesses in your argument or in your plan. Let's say you've got like 10 executives in a room and you're trying to make an important decision. And Five are advocates for, five are advocates against. Mm -hmm. And they're very passionate. Have you ever thought to just say, okay, swap sides <laughs> and present mm -hmm. the counter argument? So I want you, the people who think this can't work, to tell us why it can work. And why you people who think it can work, tell us why it can't work. Yeah. Does that ever get people to a different point of view when, in other words, you're forcing them to do the very exercise you just described? It can. You have to set it up right. So in the book, I talk about the role of the devil's advocate who played a sacred role in deliberations over canonization in the Vatican. So the devil's advocate was the person who spoke against the candidate for sainthood, questioning their miraculous achievements and their holiness. So that person was speaking for the devil against the holy. That person, the devil's advocate, played an important role in questioning the consensus. We here at the Haas School of Business where I work, some of the most important decisions that we make are the decisions to grant tenure to a junior colleague. And we regard that decision as so important. We want to make sure that contrary perspectives get drawn out. And so we appoint someone the devil's advocate, someone who takes the con position to speak against the merits of a candidate who's come up for tenure. I have seen that process succeed. I have also seen it fail. When you pick as your devil's advocate someone who really, really wants to see the case succeed, and so they don't take their role seriously, that's much more common than the person who pursues it too energetically and winds up killing the case by being too negative. Really? So I would have thought that you have somebody who's just, you know, so, so expressive about all the reasons why we shouldn't give this person tenure that they become, they persuade people. It's like, whoa, like I didn't see that, but maybe you're right. You know, that they're listening to the devil's advocate, but you're saying it's just the opposite. It's somebody that really, oh, I really can't see that much that's wrong with this guy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 
Wow. So when we pick someone for the devil's advocate who doesn't give full voice to that perspective, they'll, you know, stand up and say, well, one of their students a few years ago said that they didn't comb their hair consistently every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, some pathetic criticism that really doesn't hold much weight. And so they fail to persuade anyone. You want someone who's willing to take their devil's advocate role seriously in order to actually bring out meaningful discussion. You would want to believe that there would be people in the room calling that person out and saying, hey, you're really not you're not performing the role very effectively here by sort of these weak arguments. But I'm curious as to how you would advocate for leaders to use the devil's advocate in their own decision-making process. Doing it effectively takes courage because you really need to empower that person to articulate the most potent criticisms of the plan that you advocate or support. And most leaders are apprehensive of doing that. They don't want to foment that sort of rebellion within their ranks. But their cautious protection of their own egos comes at the expense of full deliberation. When you're trying to decide whether to pursue some risky course of action, you want the arguments, the best arguments, pro and con, to come out. You mentioned ego and I mean, it strikes me in my own professional experience that that is the key reason why we aren't digging into the alternatives and asking the hard questions and pushing people to challenge us personally as leaders. What kind of emphasis can you give to the importance of that? Yeah, I think it's easy for us as leaders to let our egos get tied up with particular ideas or proposals that we're advocating or supporting, the stronger leadership position is the one that says, I am an advocate for good decision-making and my leadership role is to see to it that we make the best decision we can using the best information we can. That's what's gonna lead to the success of the organization, to all of us collectively and to me as a leader. I want to go back to the devil's advocate for a minute because you gave a little history in the book. I think it goes back to like the 16th century when one of the popes introduced this idea that before we make a rash decision and make somebody a saint, we need to have a devil's advocate reminding us of the limitations of this person. And apparently this lasted for hundreds of years until... I'm going to remember Pope John Paul, I think. John Paul the II. The second. Okay. Yeah. And so he sort of put the devil's advocate aside and then went off and, you know, like 10 times the number of people. That were. <laughs> yeah. So is there any impact? I wasn't intending to ask anything about this because it sounds like it's got a religious instinct or bent, but is there something about his choice to eliminate the devil's advocate that then led to him picking you know, what really what amounted to was like 10 times the number of saints on an annual basis for as long as he was Pope relative to what had been done over the last 350 years. I'm no Catholic theologian, and we don't have the control group of Catholic churches that didn't eliminate the role of the devil's advocate. But it is striking how quickly the rate of canonization leapt up following the elimination of the devil's advocate role, that the rate of canonization had been about one per year in the centuries before John Paul II eliminated the role of the devil's advocate. The rate has jumped up to about one a month since then. What's the leadership takeaway from that? (laughs) the secular (laughs) answer. Yeah. Uh, Is there one? I mean, this may not even be relevant, but because you mentioned the devil's advocate and because the elimination led to so many more people becoming saints is in reading your book, it made me think, well, maybe some of these people really didn't deserve to become saints. (laughs) (laughs) the thought. Well, in a business setting, there are a lot of actions that the company shouldn't take. There are many acquisitions that you don't want to pursue, people you don't want to hire, and products you don't want to introduce. In the absence of some sort of critical check on your pursuit of reckless opportunities, you run the risk of getting yourself into trouble by saying yes too much. 
in the book, I strongly advocate taking weather decisions, the decision of whether to pursue an opportunity, whether to buy another company, whether to introduce a new product, and turn them into which decisions. Instead of deciding yes, no on a particular opportunity, you want to understand what the opportunity cost of making that choice is. And think about that choice in the context of everything else you could be doing. There is some opportunity cost to pursuing a particular acquisition. There is some opportunity cost to appointing another saint. What is that opportunity cost and what else should you be doing instead? Should you be keeping your powder dry for another opportunity that will use those resources that is coming along later? That's brilliant. And thank you for finding a way back to the meat here, but connecting it to that lesson, because I think it's really important that if we're just so inclined to just say yes to everything and to make decisions with little rigor, we're going to end up failing. And I know that seems self-evident, but this happens a lot. Yeah. Yes, let's try this. Yes, let's do this. And we're not realizing that we're committing people and we're committing capital and we're committing time. There is a real benefit to having some Slack resources that you can call on when you need them. And lots of companies are learning that the hard way yeah, in, this, say that. in this crisis moment when they don't have a rainy day fund. They don't have cash available to continue to meet payroll when business slows and their revenues decrease. And now they find themselves in desperate straits declaring bankruptcy or going hat in hand to the government for a bailout because they didn't keep some cash reserves around for hard times. Perfect. Thank you. Something else that you say is that we tend to ask questions that inherently produce a confirming opinion. <laughs> you like this shirt on me, don't you, Don? You know. <laughs> so how do you suggest that we ask people for feedback in ways that will invite truthful and accurate answers as opposed to ones that become self-fulfilling and, and, and reinforcing of what we're thinking we want to do in the first place? It is a really good question. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> it can be as subtle as the phrasing that we offer when we invite feedback from others. A question like, how'd I do, invites a more positive response from others than a question that's clearly designed to elicit suggestions for improvement. In class, when I really want people to ask questions, instead of saying to the class, anyone have any questions? I try to specifically invite their concerns by saying, I'm sure at this point, many of you have questions about what we've discussed. Or when I'm looking for feedback on a presentation, instead of asking, how'd I do? I will ask my audience, okay, how could I have done that better? What parts of my presentation were most confusing or most awkward or didn't make sense? And then some percentage of them will respond by saying, oh, I thought you did a great job. It was really interesting. I'll interrupt them and say, no, 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 no. That's not what I asked. How could I have done that better? I know it wasn't perfect. So one question it makes me ask is, so I'm the professor and I go, how'd I do? Or anyone have any questions? They made me laugh because I can think back on, you know, so many times where people do presentations and then they go, anyone have any questions? And it, it's almost as if they're saying, please don't ask me any questions because <laughs> you know, I've given you the definitive answers here. So, you know, I don't need to be challenged. We don't, you know what I mean? So you, you sort of have to look at it from the other perspective, which is you have to convey to people that you really do want feedback. Yeah, yeah. You might have to reiterate the question because it is so common for people to pose that invitation in a way that makes it clear they don't really mean it. What does that mean? So it's saying, any questions? Yeah. And then there's sure. silence. You know, you wait a second and then you charge ahead with the next part of your lecture. No, that's not good enough. Specifically invite questions. You must have questions at this point. What questions do you have? And then you wait and it can feel like an eternity but wait until someone actually asks a question. That signals your genuine interest in hearing their questions. Do you have to become, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of your grand conclusion in a minute here, but is there some personal growth, spiritual development, something inside of us that has to occur before we get comfortable asking people to poke at us and give us 
challenging feedback and direct feedback and you know what I mean? Yeah. So as leaders, we get up there and we go, any questions? Okay. I'm really sort of telegraphing. I really don't want any questions, but how do we get it so that people feel very comfortable saying, Hey, I'm not going to stand for no questions. I really want to hear what you think. And you know what I mean? Challenge this, put it out there. How do you get there as a person before you can execute this as a leader? I think the answer to your question involves letting go of a claim to perfection hmm. and instead pinning our hopes on perfectibility. That is, each of us wants to believe that we're good people, I'm a good person, that I'm, I'm worthy and I'm deserving. And the truth is that all of us are imperfect. All of us make mistakes. All of us screw up. And we give ourselves the space to work to get better when we accept that we're imperfect and strive toward improvement. Admitting that you're not perfect opens the way to allowing yourself to hear those criticisms and suggestions and make the pursuit of your own improvement, your own perfectibility, the goal rather than defending some egocentric notion that you're just right, just the way you are, and there's no need for you to improve. I'm so glad I asked that question because it really does boil down to worth and value, right? And so if you see yourself as somebody on the continuum of learning and growing and becoming more as opposed to I'm a leader, I got to look like I got my shit together. So I have to be, you mentioned the word perfection. We think we have to display that when, in fact, people respond much better to us when we say, hey, I want to learn more because I don't really know much about this, as opposed to I think I've got enough information here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's those who pretend like they have all the answers that are at great risk of screwing up. None of us has all the answers. Instead, signal your receptivity toward getting the best answers you can and being willing to solicit those answers from the most knowledgeable people you can find. Pick people to surround yourself with who are smarter and more capable than you are who can help you get better. I had Kim Powell on the podcast over a year ago. She wrote a book about deep dive into CEOs and what makes them successful. And interestingly, the common denominator that she found that was most powerful and most indicative of whether somebody was going to be successful as a CEO, so they've already become one, now how effective they are, was curiosity. Mm -hmm. Through the reading her book and having the discussion with her, that it wasn't just asking questions, but it was asking the kinds of tell me why I'm wrong kinds of questions. How might I be wrong kinds of questions? Have you found the same thing? Exactly. That is what allows the highest achievers in every field to continuously improve. Asking, how might I be wrong? How could I do that better? Being insatiably curious to find out more and to up their game wherever possible. You use this example in the book about, you know, if you're willing to make a bet, put money on it, whatever, you know, a wager, this notion that there's somebody on the other side betting something very different. And I never really thought about it in those terms. And I had this very painful experience with my brother-in-law where we were talking about a song that he and I both grew up in the East Coast. And there was a song about this amusement park in New Jersey, of all things. But nevertheless, somebody famous made a song about it. And we made this bet, rather sizable bet, on who sang it. And I was so convinced I was right, only to find out that I was wrong. And so this endures because he reminds me of it every time I see him. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I was reading your book, I was thinking, you know, if I'd only questioned myself <laughs> a little bit, you know, if I'd only just thought, I wonder if he's willing to bet this amount of money, that how might he be this certain? So go into this a little bit and pin this down, because I think it's one of the great takeaways from your book. The question, want to bet? is such a wonderful one that we can use to challenge each other and ourselves to think more rigorously about the uncertainties inherent in our decisions and in our beliefs about future states of the world. 
it is a principle that is explored delightfully in Annie Duke's wonderful book, Thinking in Bets. And she talks about the ways that poker players help themselves and each other think about the uncertainties inherent in poker play by asking, want to bet? How sure are you that you've got the winning hand? And poker players do this in all sorts of ways. She tells wonderful stories about propositional bets where a poker player will make some claim about their ability to lose weight or thrive in the heartland city of Des Moines, Iowa, where another player will challenge them, want to bet? And then they will put some stakes on who's right. That process thinking about how sure you are and what someone who's willing to bet against you, what do they think? What do they know about how hard it is to lose weight, for instance? How should I use that information to update my personal beliefs? That is profoundly useful for helping clarify our thinking and move from the place of trying to make some prediction with 100% confidence to somewhere on the scale of probability. I think I'm right. But it's not 100%. It's somewhat shy of that. How sure am I that I'm right? What I'm going to describe happened back to back in the last week in America, where there's a gentleman on the Fox News Network, Chris Wallace, and it's a conservative television channel. He leans probably in the middle, but he's probably the least conservative person, least conservative voice. Mm -hmm. And he said something critical of President Trump and people who were Fox viewers were saying, get rid of him, fire him, get rid of Chris Wallace. And then like within 48 hours, the exact same thing happened on a a more liberal station. Rick Santorum is a former Republican U.S. senator who's the only real conservative commentator on CNN. And he said something that upset the audience and, of course, (laughs) off his head. You know, we, we want him off the show. And the funny thing is, is that if you look at both of these stations, they're like 90% of the people are, you know, on CNN, it's very left-leaning, and on Fox, it's very right-leaning. And then you have this one person who's bringing the dissenting view, and we're like, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so speak to that a little bit. Yeah. The person who articulates an intelligent, honest, well-informed message that clashes with our own, that person delivers a gift of inestimable value. We should treasure that person and the perspective that they deliver. But as you articulate, too often we reject them. Now, if what they're offering is poorly thought out, if it's more opinion than fact, if it comes from a place of Um, shallow reaction and emotional vitriol, well, then we really don't have to take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. But if what we hear is a powerful, persuasive message that makes us rethink what we thought we knew, rather than reject the message, we should be saying thank you. Some people are going to hear that and go, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, Uh mean, seriously, if I'm a Fox viewer and I hear Chris Wallace criticize the Trump, I mean, you cross the line and you got to go. That's sort of the passion. The same thing with Rick Santorum. It's like, hey, you know, do you know what channel we're on here? But I'm bringing this up again because I think it's another one of these critical points of your book and your research, which shows that if we lock down too easily and too hard on our views, and we are completely unwilling to even be, even to listen to an alternative, how much harm that does. You know, I believe any discipline in life affects all disciplines in life. So if I'm that way politically, I'm going to be that guy at work. I'm going to be that kind of a manager, that kind of a leader, right? I mean, I can't differentiate. I'm suddenly not going to go, I want everybody's views. I want to hear your critiques. And then go back to, you know, watching the news and saying, I'm not happy with this person. I just don't see that happening. Do you? And what's your advice around this? Yeah. Too often we act as enforcers of some sort of political orthodoxy, imagining that we have to purge ourselves and our peer group, our organizations of deviants who disagree with us. And if we want to build organizations that are successful because they acknowledge the realities, the complex realities of the diverse 
complicated, elaborate world in which we live, well, we want to base those organizations on the best information and the most honest perspectives and the most useful insights and the best science we have access to. If we want to devise public policy that promotes economic growth and happiness and thriving among our citizens, we need to do that based on the best knowledge of the consequences that those policies will produce. And so paying attention to the best evidence is part and parcel of the formulation of wise public policy and wise corporate strategy. Just to put a bow tie on this, there's this quote that I had read many times, but you filled in the blanks. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, of course, he says, and this is, I think, one of their values, but it's his language that good managers are right a lot. And I misinterpreted that until I had read your book. And what you did was you added the greater context because apparently he goes on to say, and this is a quote, people who are right a lot change their minds a lot. They're willing to disconfirm their own strongly held positions. And so before we move on here, I just wanted to see if there's any punctuation you'd like to add to this, because I think this is one of the biggest takeaways from your book. Yeah, Amazon has elevated that principle to one of their core tenets of leadership. And its importance is reflected in words credited to the economist John Maynard Keynes. When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? In a fast-changing world that rarely complies with our assumptions, our stereotypes, and our expectations, those who care about the truth will have to revise their opinions regularly. The courage to admit you were wrong is what enables you to be right. And paying attention to reality and updating your views accordingly will help you get closer to that truth. We've talked a lot about being overconfident. Do you have any thoughts on being underconfident? So we're leaning towards, you know, sort of telegraphing the audience where this is heading is this middle ground or middle way. But we haven't really spoken too much about not being confident. So we're spent 45 minutes talking about the risks of being overconfident and the advice and guidance to solicit as much data as possible and to question why other people might see it differently and to be open and exposed and willing to have our own views of things challenged and critiqued and presented with alternatives so that we can make the best decisions. But we haven't really spoken about, could that lead us to, well, all of a sudden now I feel a little bit underconfident. Like, now I don't know which way to go. So any thoughts on that? Yeah. As a leader, you can express confidence in the process without necessarily pretending like you have all the answers. Really what's bad is to lack a reason for confidence because you lack the abilities or lack a viable business model or lack of vision for how you're going to succeed lack of process for how you're going to get closer to success. But what's even worse is to paper over those inadequacies with a brittle false confidence that runs the risk of being exposed as fraudulent when your true shortcomings are revealed. So what you'd like is to have a good basis for confidence, a process that will help you get better by uncovering useful insights and building wise and resilient strategy. It doesn't help if you don't have that. It doesn't help to put on a good show and pretend to be confident when you put yourself at risk of being exposed as a fraud or a hypocrite when the actual weaknesses are exposed. Thank you. I want to get to this middle way. In the conclusion of your book, you make the case that finding this middle way seeking a greater balance between being overconfident and the underconfidence we just talked about. And this actually happens to be an idea that's heavily influenced by Buddhism. The Buddha taught the virtues of the middle path. And so I'm really curious is to, like, were you a student of Buddhism? How did you make this connection? Is it coincidental or is it intentional? Obviously, Buddhist philosophy somehow shaped your beliefs or confirmed them. So I'm curious as to what the big picture was here. Yeah, thanks. I'm not a religious person, despite my recounting of the history of the devil's advocate within the Catholic right. Church and <laughs> my advocacy of the, the middle Pope, way. You got Buddha, right? 
<laughs> uh, so, uh, no, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. When my editor at HarperCollins, Hollis Heimbach, read my first draft, she said, there is a deep synergy between the middle way that you're advocating and the middle path from Buddhism. And I did some reading and came to really appreciate the parallels between the scientific perspective that I came from and the religious perspective offered in Buddhism's middle path. That led me to write a, a passage in the papers in the book's final chapter on moderation as advised by the world's religions, especially Buddhism, and the honesty and moderation that follows from pursuit of the middle way between over and under confidence. How interesting. So was your editor thrilled that you ended up incorporating this into the book? <laughs> she was satisfied enough with it that she didn't try to delete it from the <laughs> next draft. I sent her. Yes. She wasn't, she didn't, you know, there was no acknowledgement that she'd influenced the direction of your book. Um, she influenced it in many ways. And, and yeah, I think she was happy with that passage. That's awesome. I think synchronicity has a big role in life, you know. And in fact, I'd like to ask you going back, what was the name of the woman who was the poker player? Annie Duke. Yeah. Right. Is that her name? I happened to see something right before meeting with you, like in the last week or so, where she talked about luck being a big part of success in life. And I, I wanted to ask you about this because I went out on Twitter a few months ago and asked people, how much luck do you credit to your success? And almost universally, it was like, hell no. No luck. <laughs> it was all my hard work, my own perseverance. I did it my way. And I was surprised by that, that people didn't sort of, you know, at least leave the door open that there might be some luck. So here's a poker player, world-class poker player saying luck plays a role. What's your conclusion? Yeah. Annie Duke talks a lot about the risks of resulting that it's a bias that psychologists have written about under the heading, the hindsight bias, that after we see how something's come out, we think it always had to be that way. After we see what success we've achieved in life, we assume it always had to be that way. And that good poker players don't fall victim to the to resulting, they don't fall victim to the hindsight bias, and they retain an appreciation of how it could have been otherwise, how the hand could have been dealt differently from the deck. And the insights that Annie Duke offers, I see as paralleled by some of the insights offered by economist Robert Frank in his book on luck. And he's written about how strenuously people will object to any implication, as you mentioned, that the implication that their successes are due to luck, as if doing so denies their hard work or talent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he notes the crucial importance of luck, even for those who are very talented and hardworking, that there, in most circumstances, there are others who are also talented and also hardworking who don't achieve the same outcomes. And Robert Frank suggests asking, have you ever been lucky in your life or your career? And how differently people respond to that question. They'll often regale you with stories of the many times the stars align to help them along life's path demonstrating insight into luck's crucial role in driving their outcomes in life. And that, that's true for just about all of us in some way or other. It's all the way you frame the question. And once again, right? Well, that's really fascinating. Don, before I ask you my final question, I'd like to take a brief break and ask you a few questions about you personally, your interests, influences, life philosophy, our audience knows this as the heartbeat round because all the questions are brief and we want you to answer each one instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. So if you're ready, I'll toss out the first question. Bring it on. Okay, cool. One self-help book you do recommend we all read? If it has to be a published book, I would say Thinking in Bits by Annie Duke. There's another book coming out, which I would recommend with enormous enthusiasm, The Scout Mindset by Julia Galef. Cool. Thank you. A quote that best summarizes your views on confidence. Often I find myself coming back to this quote from U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. He said, I'm just as little disposed to give way to undue pessimism as to undue and arrogant optimism. Both our virtues and our defects should be taken into account. Perfect. A bet on the future you're very willing to make. <laughs> uh, I bet I'm going to survive until tomorrow. So far, no COVID symptoms. Okay. One piece of advice you'd give your younger self. Mm. Aim higher. Take more risks. 
something about Berkeley. And this could be the town or the university, Cal, we might be surprised to learn. I was surprised to learn that the town's aging residents are far more politically liberal than either the students or the faculty at the university. So uh, the students and faculty are here because of the excellence of this academic institution and the aging hippies who love Berkeley just the way it is and never want to see any of it change. They've become the true conservatives. Biggest risk you've ever taken in life. When I quit my fast-paced corporate job to go back to graduate school. The trait you admire most in other people. Honesty, especially when it's painful or embarrassing. Your synonym for the word heart. Courage. Skill improvement you're working on right now. I am working on getting better presenting and teaching using online platforms like Zoom. Wow, I would think that there's a shared, you know, shared learning going on here across the world on that <laughs> one. So very good. Yeah. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading? I am a devotee of The New Yorker and the Data Collada blog online. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Overconfidence. I wish I had the plug bell to ring for that. <laughs> set you up so wonderfully <laughs> with that. I should have seen that coming. And a leader of any era you greatly respect? Mahatma Gandhi. Wonderful. And see, you said you weren't spiritual or religious. Now you bring up another one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Don, thank you very much. These are great. So I've got one more question for you, but thank you. These were wonderful answers. Before you go, and this is going to seem like it's coming out of nowhere, but it really is sort of one of the other grand conclusions of your book. I want you to speak about your convictions about and setting it up the way that you did. Whether managers should choose between being results-oriented or being people-oriented. You close your book with an interesting conclusion, and I'd love my audience to hear this. Thanks. In the book, I argue that managers should avoid being results-oriented when that means rewarding people based on the results they obtain, because actual results are so dependent on luck that often, professionally, we take risks whose outcomes aren't guaranteed. And as a boss and as a company, what you should want is that your people are taking smart risks, not always the most cautious course of action that is most likely to result in success, but taking the actions with the highest expected value, pursuing opportunities, even when failure is more likely than success, if their potential payoff is large enough. If you've got some bet that only stands a 10% probability of success, but will pay off a thousand to one, oh yeah, that has a really positive expected value, but should be scary for the person who makes that choice because the probability of failure is so much higher than the probability of success. What you'd like to be able to do is to reward your people based on the expected value of their choices. You want them making smart bets, even when they're risky and even when they don't always get lucky. I realize that that constitutes a, a management challenge because you have to figure out a way to assess the expected value of a choice at the time they make it without falling victim to resulting and the hindsight bias, assuming that whatever happened was inevitable. And that probably involves doing smart calculation about expected values at the time you make the choice and not deciding what the probabilities were after you see what happened. So pin down the people orientation piece because I'm not sure you did. Yeah, thanks. Listening to people, attending to their perspectives, drawing out discrepant opinions, honoring their views, that is part and parcel of some of the benefits of people orientation that I think is entirely compatible with the results orientation that I've just described. And it's intimately connected with the sort of psychological safety that Amy Edmondson talks about as being essential to successful organizational function. Wonderful. We will leave it there. This has been a fascinating discussion. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to thank you so very much, Don, on behalf of my audience. I really wish you great success with your book, and we're really honored that you joined us today. Many thanks. It's been a delight. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Go Bears. <laughs> Go Bears. As we close, I want to thank you for continuing to introduce us to your friends and colleagues as of this week, our audience now reaches 139 countries worldwide, and this metric alone encourages us to keep going. 
And I know this is a broken record message at the end of many of my episodes, but it really would be wonderful if you could make time to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. A review from you will not only help people find us, it will help them trust that their time listening into this podcast will be very well spent. My continued thanks go to my wonderful team of supporters, especially Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and Mirjana Novkovic. And a very special thanks to my producer and editor, Eric Oz, who puts his heart into every episode to make it as great as it possibly can be. And speaking of that, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.